Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I will add my voice to the chorus of voices that you have heard, just saying it's so good to be with you and see your faces and sing collectively together. What a gift this is. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in an important series this week called The Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is the symbol or metaphor given to um, the characteristics that are part of our life when we abide in the person of Christ. And this week, our focus is on this word, peace. I'd venture to guess that most of us are aware of the absence of that word in our own lives, perhaps, perhaps, um, certainly in the world around us. The pastor, Barbara Brown Taylor, said it this way, there may be no experience in the world that we want more and have less than the experience of peace. The word is everywhere describing something that is desired but missing between nations, between people, between the good earth and its inhabitants. Chiefly, we tend to notice the absence of tranquility in our own hearts and minds. However much we hanker for peace, we have for the most part learned to live without it. Now, I don't know about you, but these words resonated pretty deeply for me. The New Testament word that we see over and over again for peace is arene, and it actually comes from the Greek verb ero, which means a binding or a joining of that which has been disconnected, has been separated, but belongs together. We find ourselves living in a moment where there's a deep scarcity of this kind of arene connection. And we feel this on so many levels, right? It, we almost don't even have to speak to it, socially, politically, personally, The world is full of sort of these hard and overwhelming realities. And so in the name of survival, many of us, myself very much included at points, have sort of settled into this space where we've kind of learned to live without this abiding sense of peace. And part of what this text from Mark chapter four invites us to do is to pause for a moment and consider the good news reality that the word peace that we so long for is not just a myth, but an actual possibility, however you are in this very moment. Now, as I say that, it's important to name that um, mental health struggles like anxiety and depression are very real and difficult medical realities. And if that's you and you're here today, please hear this is not a sermon, um, you know, that we're going to say, if you only had more faith, you'd feel better. Instead, we observe the fruit of peace in Jesus's life and then receive into our own story what Jesus teaches us about this reality of peace, just as we are. The first one is this, the source of peace, then the pathway of peace and the outcome of peace. The source of peace, the pathway to peace and the outcome of peace. So I invite you to pray with me now as we uh, prepare our hearts to study God's word together. Jesus, we thank you for this community. We thank you um, for folks listening online, for those of us who are in this room together. God, it is a joy to be your people. We believe deeply that there is something that happens when we center ourselves around you and your ways and your word. So Father, I pray that by your grace, as we listen and receive from you this morning, that you would shape us to be people of deep peace a peace that cannot be taken or stolen, but a peace that is unchanging in you. God, we um, are so grateful to be your children. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we begin by looking at this first point, which is the source of peace. In our text that Megan read today, uh, Mark sort of sets the scene for us. 
right? Jesus is uh, with his disciples on a boat headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that there's a great windstorm that sets in and the water actually becomes a threat to the boat. The boat becomes swamped. In other words, the boat has taken on more water than it can hold. Now, holding this picture in your mind, I want to zoom out for a moment and say a bit about the imagery of the sea and what that represents all throughout scripture. In the ancient world, the sea was understood to be a place of chaos and danger. Little was known about the sea. It was untamed, unpredictable, and even thought to be uh, the gateway to the underworld. And given that fact, the disciples were probably a bit confused to begin with about why Jesus was insisting that they go to the other side. Because of sort of this understanding of what the water was, what the sea was, it was common that fishermen, uh, who we know at least four of the folks on the boat with Jesus are, it was common that they would stay close to the shore where things were predictable, where they had this sense that they were still in control. Now, in our modern context, obviously, we know a bit more scientifically about what's happening in the sea. And yet, it's not all that difficult to imagine the fear that the disciples are experiencing in this moment. Our family just recently purchased a little 15-foot sailboat. Um, I made the mistake of calling it a dinghy because it's pretty small. And my husband was like, it's not a dinghy, it's a boat. And I'm like, sure, sure, it's a boat. Um, But we had the privilege of sailing around the Puget Sound last weekend. It was beautiful. Thankfully, there were no storms. But the entire time we were out on the water, my eldest son uh, here, Mark, he located himself firmly in the cabin of the boat. I mean, how cute is that? And he would not leave that little perch. And at one point we sort of encouraged him and said, come on, Mark, come out here. We're gonna, you know, watch fireworks and and do some things. And he says, I'm gonna stay here because there's too much water. Um, He also just recently learned about the Titanic, which probably didn't help our cause much. (laughs) But that said, this response, his response is totally understandable. It makes so much sense. It's a very human thing to feel fear and worry about that which we cannot see, predict, or control. And so much of life is that. And for the disciples, this fear has proven valid because now a storm is overtaking their boat. The water is coming in and it's too much water. And in the middle of the scene lies Jesus, their leader, the teacher, the one who could presumably do something about their predicament, and he's asleep. Now, before we look at the invitation that Jesus offers us by way of example this morning, I want to just give each of us space to feel sort of angst and frustration alongside the disciples who wake Jesus and immediately say to him, do you not care? I have a situation in my life right now that's causing me to experience what I can only describe as a lack of peace. I worry. I feel frustration. I I can feel the anxiety kind of settling in my body when I think about this particular set of circumstances that I'm unsure of how to navigate. It keeps me awake at night, which is saying something because I like to think sleep is a spiritual gift that I have. And I won't go into the details. They're not so important, but you get the idea. It feels like too much water. And as I've felt the water rising, so to speak, I've called out to God. I've asked God for wisdom. I've asked God to change things, make it easier. And at the end of the day, it still feels as though I'm standing knee deep. And I'd be willing to bet as I share this, at least half of you in the room can bring to mind your own set of circumstances, which similarly land you in a place where you feel as though you're on a boat and the water's too much. 
chaotic, unpredictable, see all around, Jesus asleep. Instability around your finances as our economy sort of struggles along. It's a, a pervasive shame that you've carried from childhood. It's a mental health struggle that perhaps you've lived with for a long time, but has surfaced with sort of this new intensity. It's a health diagnosis that has you facing the most difficult of all human realities. I'm not in control. It's a, it's a marriage struggle. If that's you, you're not alone. And so at least initially when I read this story, my default is not to think, wow, Jesus, thank you for the peace you bring amidst the storm. We'll get there. But my first thought is honestly this, Jesus, wake the heck up. Help us. And so if you're here this morning and you're carrying that sentiment, I just want to say it's valid. We can learn something from the disciples' utter honesty in this moment. Now, having named that reality and not losing sight of it, I want us to shift our attention for a moment and focus on the experience of Jesus himself. Understandably, we often look at the story through the lens of the disciples but consider with me where it is that Jesus is coming from. The particular, this particular story takes place very early in Jesus's ministry. And already he sort of stirred up quite a bit of controversy. In Mark chapter three, just after healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, uh, we read this. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Skip down a few verses. All of this still in chapter three, Mark tells us in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd came together again so they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, Jesus, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has the devil and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So just to offer a clear picture of what is happening here, Jesus is being sought by the religious Jews and the political elite, both of whom have power and want to destroy him. He is under tremendous pressure from the crowd, so much so that he does not have even space to enjoy a meal. His own family thinks he has lost it and they're trying to rein him in. And now the scribes, another kind of sect of religious people, are saying he must be the rulers of demons. Now, I don't know about you. I've had some hard days, but this feels impossible. (laughs) And I name all that to say that Jesus, the very same person who sleeps peacefully on the boat, is also intimately familiar with pressure, with feeling deeply misunderstood, with the impossibly difficult. He knows the experience of too much water, and yet he still sleeps. Still, Jesus knows a deep and real peace when everything circumstantially in his life appears to be crumbling. In this moment on the boat, um, Jesus is a living embodiment of that Beautiful verse in Psalm 4, uh, verse 8, which reads this way, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Notice there's an exclusivity here to the words offered by the psalmist. It's my connection, my proximity, my belongingness to God alone that becomes the source of my peace and safety. It's the very definition of that connection, arena word. And so as we lean into this story, we begin to see that Jesus's own experience of peace, it confronts sort of the cultural um, present notion that peace is dependent on this like outward tranquility. Like if everything in my life could just be okay, then I would experience peace. 
but that's not actually the case. And this is actually good news for us because we have all gone through enough of life to know that if my peace is dictated by my circumstances, I'll never get there. That kind of peace is actually a myth. Instead, this biblical notion of peace invites us towards this ever deepening intimacy, this connection, this arena with Christ right here, right now, just as we are. I, um, Mark includes this great little phrase at the beginning of the story to describe Jesus. And I just, I just love this. He writes, they took him in the boat just as he was. And I love this detail because it reminds us that the humanity of Christ, of the humanity of Christ, he was fully God, absolutely. And we certainly see his divinity and power in the story, but we also see this kind of beautifully tender picture of Jesus. On this particular day for Jesus, just as he was, probably included a bit of exhaustion and frustration. Uh, I picture him kind of sitting there wondering about his own calling, feeling sadness even over his family's disappointment in him. Anyone ever been there? See, Jesus knew peace just as he was. And we find in that a really timely invitation not to pretend I'm somehow doing better than I am and put on a good face and call that peace not to try to sort of double down and control everything and everyone in my life and white knuckle my way to peace. That's not it either. Not to somehow distract my way out of discomfort with mindless hours on social media. That's not peace. Rather, the invitation is this, to name with courageous honesty, this is where I am today and I belong to God. Right here, he's in the boat. So that's our first point. The source of peace is found not in circumstances, but in our connection and belonging to God, just as we are. And that all sounds good and well, but a valid question is like, how do I practically live into and experience that reality? Our second point focuses on the pathway to peace. We see this exemplified in Jesus's life and in this story in particular. Notice the um, beginning of verse 36, Jesus tells us that they get in the boat and they leave the crowd behind. Now, if I put myself in the position of the crowd, I can imagine there were folks who were not too pleased that Jesus was leaving. Nonetheless, in this moment, Jesus retreats. He takes a step back from the noise and the expectations and he gets in the boat. Now, if you read through the gospel of Mark, you'll notice that this isn't the first time Jesus has assumed this posture. In fact, twice in Mark chapter one, we see Jesus step away in a similar manner, a similar manner, once going into the wilderness and then once moving early in the morning into a secluded place to pray. And this is the crux of our second point. The pathway to peace is centered on this word retreat. The, the concept of retreating, it has its origins, as many of you will know, in sort of military jargon. It's a a word originally used to describe the withdrawal from battle when troops uh, were feeling tired or, you know, their strategy wasn't working. And because of this, we often see the word as having sort of negative connotations. But more often than not, strategic, strategic retreat is actually a positive maneuver, right? It allows troops to rest and to get a panoramic view of their situation. It's an essential part of a successful fight. In the year 1520, a a Spanish man named um, Ignatius of Loyola, who actually had a military background, he took this concept of strategic retreat and applied it to the spiritual life. St. Ignatius looked at the life of Christ and rightfully saw there was this rhythm to the way that he lived. 
It involved taking a step back for the purpose of reflection and prayer and rest, leaving the crowd and climbing into the boat. So St. Ignatius developed this sort of formal retreat. And during these retreats, people were invited to come away from their day-to-day life for like 40 days and then to reflect on, examine their own heart. Where am I feeling God's presence day-to-day, moment-to-moment? Where am I feeling God's absence? And after walking through this exercise, they would then reaffirm their connection and belonging to God in all of life so that upon returning to their normal non-treat reality, they were keenly aware that belonging, their belonging, especially in those moments where they felt Christ's absence, Christ was not absent. They would have no, nothing that would compromise their peace because they were keenly aware Christ is with me all of life. It's a funny word, this word retreat. It seems to imply giving up. In my mind, it's sort of synonymous with surrender or waving the white flag. But ironically, in the economy of God's kingdom, it's the pathway forward. It's how we move towards strength. And the part of this story of Jesus on the boat that rightfully gets a great deal of attention is that moment when Jesus stands and he calms the storm. We love that part. He woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. See, part of what retreat allows us to do is not only to identify with the truth that we belong to God, but to identify the power and the nature of that God. Remember, the sea in that day was the ultimate symbol of sort of chaos and and evil and death. There is a foreshadowing of sorts at work here. The disciples get a sense of power that will ultimately be fully and entirely displayed when Jesus conquers chaos, darkness, and death on the cross. This isn't just a story about a boat. It's a resurrection story. And it communicates to us that when we step back from the demands of life, when we pause, when we retreat, we do not retreat in weakness, but into this ultimate resurrection, storm-calming strength. And as I make a practice of retreating into this God, I learn to live more consistently with this awareness of God in all of life. A few years back, I was talking with a, a good and trusted friend of mine about some anxiety related to uh, a prolonged sort of health struggle that I was having. I had some tumors and um, I was perpetually kind of having to get those tested and I was waiting for results and Um, On top of that, I was feeling shame about my anxiety. Like if somehow I was a better pastor or a better Christian, I wouldn't be feeling this way. Now, this friend happens to be a recovering alcoholic. And um, that is relevant because as I shared the struggle, he listened with a lot of empathy and like a good friend was sort of just present with me in that moment. But then as the conversation rounded out, he said, you know, I can't relate to all of what you're going through, but I can say that when I feel out of control, praying the serenity prayer has become a source of tremendous peace for me. Many of you will know it's that simple prayer that goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot control, courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And I love and trust this friend. And so I started to pray those words. And over time, that prayer became this place of retreat for me. It wasn't a fix-it formula, but slowly my soul began to settle deeply into the truth that God holds and controls things that I do not. And that simple prayer in a way freed me to enter into the world then with greater peace. 
Just this week, uh, I was at a park in our neighborhood with my kids and we, they were having a snack and my older son finished. And um, I told him, you know, before you go play, you need, to, you need to throw away that wrapper. And I watched him look around and there was no garbage can in sight. And so he turned around and he handed the wrapper to me and he said, here you go, mom, you'll figure it out. And then he took off, turned around before I could respond or rebuke the sheer entitlement. Um, he just ran out to that playground, like not a care in his three-year-old world. And oddly enough, his words reminded me of this serenity prayer posture. God, grant me the serenity to accept the waves in this sea I cannot control. To hand it over to you. You'll figure it out. Not only that, but you've figured it out. So when thoughts and worries about, you know, the future of my kids keep me up at night, I remember they are infinitely better off in your hands, God, than they are in mine. Or when shame over my past becomes paralyzing, I remember you, God, have fully and definitively removed the burden. Or when I have a keen sense that injustice is winning in our world, I remember God has dismantled evil and I can focus on my very small part of that effort with with just arrested confidence. There's a peace that comes as I retreat into God, acknowledge God's character and his power and my own limitation. It's freeing. So where are your spaces of retreat? Where are you taking a step back from the crowd and the noise to experience this peace that we cannot manufacture, but only God can give? For most of us, that won't look like entering a monastery for 40 days, though um, for some of us after, you know, being homebound, that might sound kind of nice. It could be as simple for you as going home today and taking a nap right? If anyone tries to challenge you on that, you say, I'm just doing what Jesus would do. Allowing physical rest to reorient your perspective in needed ways. It might mean praying that serenity prayer this week when you feel angst in your spirit start to grow. I know for me that just therapy each week has been a place of retreat over the last couple of years. It's a space where I can reflect on both the, the beautiful and the hard parts of my story and how God is working in all of that as I offer my gifts to the world. I have a dear friend who's a member here at this church and she was having a difficult time at work, just feeling overwhelmed and worry. And like, there was so much pressure and it just wave after wave, the water was rising, never letting up. And she said, you know what? I'm just going to take two days off. I'm just going to walk away for two days, get, um, remember to whom I belong and be able to move forward with a clear sense of call. So I'd encourage you to consider this path of retreat. What might it look like for you in this season? That brings us to this third and final point, which is the outcome of peace. If we were to focus exclusively on the source of peace and the pathway to peace, then biblically speaking, our definition of the word would be incomplete. See, the biblical understanding of peace never ends with an individual internal feeling. That's never the goal. Rather, the fruit of my own sense of peace is that I navigate the world in a way that brings forth peace, right? There's this ripple effect that my presence actually expands God's peace in the world. We see this acutely in the life of Jesus who had moments of retreat, but did not live a life of retreat. Instead, Jesus's times of retreat reinforced his sense of belonging and enabled him to embody a peaceful presence as he lived out his calling. The pastor, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, captures this dynamic. She writes, the purpose of retreat is always twofold. 
to become more deeply grounded in God as the ultimate orienting reality of our lives and to return to the life God has given us with renewed strength, vitality, and clarity about how we are called to be in God for the world. And we see this very dynamic at work in our passage from Mark. Jesus has told the disciples that they are going to the other side. This would have come as a surprise to Jesus's followers because Galilee, the space where they were and where they'd kind of been hanging out is a largely Jewish area. And now they're headed to the other side, which is a place called Decapolis, which is a totally different place, culturally speaking. It's where the the Gentiles and the Romans lived. There were no synagogues there. It wasn't familiar or comfortable territory. And yet Jesus is unmoved in his commitment to go there because his calling is not simply to know peace, but to be peace, to embody connection where there is division. So they go to the other side. When they arrive in Decapolis following the storm in chapter five, Mark tells us that immediately they are faced with this somewhat jarring scene. There's a man with an unclean spirit who has broken free from the shackles that were binding him. And he confronts Jesus kind of in this really in your face sort of way. And Jesus then proceeds to have a conversation, not with the man, but with the demons that are inside the man. And then he casts them out and he sends the demon into a herd of 2000 pigs. Can you imagine? And then the pigs run off a cliff and into the sea where they drown. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but the point I want to highlight is this. Jesus lived with such clarity around his belongingness to God that he was able to move into situations, even chaotic ones, with a deep peace and a grounded discernment. He knew when to speak and to confront and to call out, as we see in this story. And he knew when to stay silent, as we see in Luke chapter 23, when he stands before um, Herod. And he has every reason to defend himself in that moment. And yet there's not a trace of defensiveness in him. He listened with humility and bore witness to the stories of folks who were not often heard. Jesus loved people deeply, but his life was not dictated by the crowd's expectations of him. He didn't carry the weighty burden of pride and ego, which whispers, there's always something to prove. He was always on the move, but he was not restless. He was present to what was immediately before him. And when the time comes for Jesus to go to the cross, he does so willingly because as Colossians 1 uh, tells us, Jesus's mission and purpose culminates when he makes peace, when he reconciles, when he connects all things through the blood of his cross. In other words, peace was not something Jesus experienced, but something he embodied, something he offered, something he made a reality for others in the world because he knew it to the very core of his being. He moved into the gaps as a person of that Irene deep connection. Uh, just a couple of weeks back, some of our good friends were in town uh, staying with us along with their three small kids. And this family's originally from Uganda. They've been in the United States for about 10 years. And in a couple of weeks, they're heading back to Uganda uh, where they've been working on this project together. They're building a state-of-the-art hospital in a rural area of that country um, where folks otherwise would not have access to healthcare. And so it's this huge project and we got to spend several days with them and it was so inspiring to kind of hear their vision for it. Um, his name's Andy and his wife's name is Sonia. And the last night they were with us over dinner, I said, you know, you two, I just, I want to thank you for sharing your life with us. Like the things you're doing, the way you're 
faithfully living into this calling. It's so inspiring. And Andy responded by very sincerely saying, we feel like we're just making connections as God puts them before us. It's been two weeks since they left and I've been chewing on those words. That's what it means to be a person of peaceful presence, to bring things together that belong together as God puts them before us. Connecting people to healthcare and physical wholeness for their body. Connecting our kids with the reality of God's unconditional love for them. Connecting our neighbors uh, through hospitality and care. Our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation here at Bethany has a mission statement that talks about being co-agents of reconciliation. Connecting what has been deeply broken by racism. That's a reine peace. I think of the crew from our church down at Camp Attitude serving folks with special needs, connecting those people um, to the truth of their value and belovedness. I think of the folks they'll encounter at Camp Attitude with special needs and how those people will undoubtedly connect our crew with a more holistic and beautiful understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is what the fruit of peace looks like making connections as God puts them before us. Notice we don't have to create it. The pressure is not on us. We are the agents bearing the fruit of Jesus in our life. I grew up attending a small Presbyterian church just south of here in a town called Centralia. I told this story at 8 a.m. and someone was like, oh, the town with the really good cinnamon rolls. Apparently that is our legacy. Um, But anyway, each week uh, I would attend a little Presbyterian church there with my family. And each week there would be this moment uh, where we would pass the peace. Here at Bethany, we call it the minute mingle. Um, But it's the same idea. And at my childhood church each week, the pastor would say, may the peace of Christ be with you. And all the people would respond and also with you. And then he or she would say, now let us share Christ's peace with one another. And in a way, this simple call and response sort of sums up our entire teaching for today. Wherever you are, however you are, whatever storm the last 18 months has brought your way, whatever you may be living through in this moment, may the peace of Christ be with you. May you retreat into the knowledge that just as you are, you belong in the boundless grace of God. And then, and then we don't stop there, but we share Christ's peace with one another, moving into the world as people of connection and arene hope. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we thank you that indeed uh, you offer us this peace that passes all understanding. God, in this moment, I just acknowledge that uh, how often I look elsewhere and miss that offering. Father, uh, I pray that as we sit here today, as we reflect on your word, that we would just have this deep and real palpable sense, God, um, of your power, (laughs) of your resurrection hope, of the reality that you hold all things and that we are bound to you. And in so being bound, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can take away our peace. God, we received that this morning with such hearts of gratitude. God, help us to to be people who live in such a way that 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 same sense of peace 
just touches the world, just bumps up against it in ways that are so needed and important right now, even here in our city. God, we're grateful for each other and to be here in this moment. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.